you very much uh, um, for this kind, uh, invitation, kind introduction. I'm really delighted uh, to be here, uh, especially with, you see, uh, old friends and hopefully new friends uh, around this uh, hall, this wonderful uh, hall. Um, and um, after this uh, generous uh, introduction, it can only be uh, downhill, so I uh, hope, uh, hope I manage to meet your expectations. For me, it's an opportunity to share with you uh, uh, my research and thoughts about uh, future research, and uh, I'll be uh, eager to get your um, uh, comments and reactions. Um, so, um, to tie the topic of the discussion to, uh, to um, today's events, um, I ask, uh, I begin by asking what is the connection between Brexit, between the success of uh, Donald Trump uh, uh, and global governance. Um, um, we see the rise of uh, nationalism, nativism, populism, different uh, uh, descriptions of, of a pattern of uh, uh, political, um, maybe I, use, I could use the term uh, uprising of uh, of um, um, diffuse constituencies vis uh, against uh, elite again what they see as uh, elites and uh, and elites that use global institutions that use their ability to move from one jurisdiction to to another. Typically, uh, we talk about uh, the multinational corporations, of course, as as the epitome of this ability of uh, of um, uh, money to move across a jurisdiction without being able to be captured by by, by state uh, governments. So, um, and there's a lot of talk about the connection between Brexit, Trumpism, and um, globalization. Uh, and I'm trying to figure out, to, trying to think about what is the connection not between between this phenomenon and globalization, but between this and global governance bodies. So what? And, and, and what is or what should could be, what should be the role of law, and especially the role of international law in this uh, context? Because some, not all, but some of those global governance bodies are international organizations. Some that are governed by treaties, that are governed by international law. Some of them are um, more diffuse, more informal, government-to-government um, -government, uh, institutions. Some of them are, are private institutions that, are, that have uh, gained the uh, ability to set standards or, or governments have uh, had, uh, provided them with the opportunity to set standards. So we have private institutions, we have uh, governmental institutions, we have uh, joint government uh, private institutions that all um, um, are busy setting standards and, and regulating the way we live our lives, our opportunities, um, our, um, um, our ways, our ability to shape our own lives. And, uh, and uh, I think that what I'm reading about this phenomenon of, of uh, anti-globalization um, um, it is associated with people's sense of diminishing opportunities, 
reduced uh, social uh, safety nets, and the sense of muted voice or depleting uh, depletion of the political space domestically. So you can argue before the parliament, but the parliament is itself quite um, uh, constrained in the way uh, it can, um, um, it can uh, shape uh, policies. Um, so these are the concerns of uh, diffuse um, uh, constituencies in the, in the developed world, in the northern part of the, of the uh, globe. Um, to these concerns, we must add the concerns of those in the developing world. And we have speakers um, from those regions. We have uh, famous uh, uh, writings by international lawyers like uh, uh, Chimney from India, uh, Rajakopal, uh, and others uh, expressing the concern about domination by global governance bodies, domination by the north of the south. Um, and the concerns that we hear, we see when we, we witness in the developing world, um, the, the, the concerns are about, similarly, about, about, about uh, misallocation of, uh, uh, of opportunities, uh, imposing the burdens, the risks on the develop, developing world and on the diffuse constituencies within the developing world. So there is, um, of course, uh, on average, rise in the um, standard of living in the developing world, but there are also um, rising inequality there. Uh, we know that the labor standards, for example, are still too low in many of those countries. Unsafe working conditions, etc. So, if this is a picture of global governance uh, institutions, um, uh, The question is what can be done uh, and uh, what is the role of law? What could be the role of law and especially the role of international law in uh, addressing uh, these, uh, these problems? Um, and I think the first step is in this, in this uh, um, endeavor is to understand the problem. What are the problems and where do they come from? And this, I think, uh, could be, um, uh, in general, be, be uh, sum, summed up as what uh, Professor Richard Stewart called the problem of the disregard. The problem of the disregard. The, in, those institutions uh, are accountable to some, but they are not accountable to many others. Those others are simply disregarded by these institutions. And uh, we need to understand who are they and why are they disregarded. And uh, to understand this, I think we should distinguish between two types of disregard. One type I refer to as the horizontal disregard. This is the north versus south. This is the... Uh, rich state, the developed states, the powerful states versus all others. 
the rich, powerful states, they are able to disregard the others. Uh, and the other type of disregard is the vertical disregard, is the internal domestic disregard, where, where um, um, more powerful political actors, usually those who can shift their, um, their bases from one country to another, um, they are able to shape domestic policies. They are able to influence the government. Um, whereas all others, they just pay the taxes and, uh, um, and uh, but their voice is, uh, is limited. It is limited because decision-making uh, venue, the, the, the venue for, for decision-making uh, is shifting or has shifted from the uh, local, from the parliaments, from the leg domestic legislature to global bodies. Uh, and the traditional constitutional checks and balances that uh, uh, democratic uh, government, democratic states have, uh, have established over the years do not exist, simply do not exist uh, in the um, global uh, sphere. So it is ultimately powerful northern um, interests that shape or help shaping the, the decision-making of global institutions and um, thereby create two uh, dimensions of disregard, the, the horizontal and the uh, vertical. Um, now, what facilitates this um, disability? In addition, why aren't, aren't they checks and balances in the global sphere? Well, one reason is that, and we see this phenomenon, that um, those powerful countries, when they are not happy, well, well, whenever they are no longer happy with an institution because there is a coalition that, 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 is, um, that is slowly emerging against them and uh, pushes against them, what they do is they shift to another institution. They are always able or to the extent that they are able to shift from one institution to another, this is a strategy that they use in order to maintain their power. Um, and let me give you one example. The example is uh, uh, trade law. So we had uh, the old uh, GATT agreement, GATT arrangement that got stuck in the 80s because the uh, non-aligned movement was able to force its uh, its voice, um, and then because of uh, because of the difficulty that the U.S. and the EU faced at, uh, in the gut, they simply said, "Well, we, you know what? We don't play this game anymore. We move, we we leave the uh, the institution. We uh, we set up a new one. We call it WTO. We will we will take all the rules of gut, but it will be a different institution. You want to join on our terms." And guess what? Everybody was flocking to join. Now, WTO now is in um, 
serious uh, uh, difficulties again, west or northwest or south. What do we have? We have the new mega regional agreements, the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the trade and, and the TTIP trade, uh, Trans-Atlantic, whatever, uh, <coughs> partnership, okay? So we have TPP and we have TTIP, two mega regional agreements that include only part of the, of the countries, not all of them. And why do we have two? Why do we have TTIP and TPP? Well, if you, if you, if you uh, observe what the U US negotiators actually even say openly, it's a way to ensure that the, that, uh, the Pacific countries and the EU uh, are held separately. That the US is able to uh, negotiate uh, uh, with each of them separately. And, uh, and TPP was already uh, uh, agreed upon. Uh, and therefore, the, 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 the uh, position, negotiating position of the EU has, uh, was, was diminished as, as a result. So this is, a, this is, the, this is what we uh, uh, observe uh, as a phenomenon that manages to, uh, to ensure the, uh, uh, the, the, the power of uh, powerful states and powerful uh, uh, stakeholders that uh, shape the, the, those states' uh, positions. So when Trump uh, argues against NAFTA and against the trade agreement, there is, there is a point there. There is a point that, that the TPP is problematic. It is problematic for many reasons that I cannot uh, get into uh, today, but just to, uh, to, to make uh, this point. So, so um, and, and, and so the next point is that uh, what are the consequences of the disregard? The consequences of the disregard, as you would anticipate, as you know from, from any uh, uh, political um, uh, process that you took part in, uh, those who have no voice lose out, right? So the disregard shifts the burdens and shifts the benefits in a way that, uh, that um, um, leaves the disregarded with less than what they could have had, should have had, had uh, the uh, decision-making process be more, uh, 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 more inclusive. And uh, often, the disregarded even do not know about the outcomes. How many know about the TPP and what are the consequences of the TPP? For just for one example. So this leads. If these are the if these are the difficulties, these are the challenges. Uh, then uh, perhaps inclusion uh, is uh, is the remedy. Uh, and I will uh, say three things about about inclusion. As a remedy, uh, first of all, uh, so in terms of, in terms of the value, in terms of the the, the benefits of, of inclusion, um, the first one is that uh, inclusion would uh, is likely to lead to more sustainable outcome, more sustainable allocation of resources. If all interests, if all 
uh, stakeholders' views are taken into account, it is, uh, it is likely that the ultimate outcomes that are, uh, are, that are reached are, are uh, linked to more sustainable, efficient allo allocation of resources and, and risks. Here I um, rely, and there's a lot of literature on this, but just to give you one, um, one famous uh, book by uh, Darren Atchimuglo and James Robinson, Why Nations Fail. Um, their point, they, they, um, they, uh, they observe different uh, countries and different economies, and their observation is that economies that used to be ex what they call uh, extractive, so th namely the opposite of inclusive, uh, using one, um, uh, abusing some of the uh, 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 stakeholders, at, um, we're not able to, um, to uh, maintain sustainable economies over time, whereas economies that used to be inclusive, that included all, all uh, participants in um, the uh, decision-making process and uh, provided all of them with equal rights, turn out to be uh, more, um, more sustainable. So uh, one, one uh, very brief um, um, example is that the distinction between uh, South America and North America. So the, uh, the colonies in South America were extractive and led to failure over time. The, col the colonies in the North were inclusive and the economies thrived over time. So even before talking about, about justice and about democracy, in terms of sustainability and success, successful or uh, efficient allocation of resources, Inclusion is, uh, is, is important. Um, secondly, the second uh, argument for inclusion is, um, is uh, uh, democracy, voice, di human dignity. Right? I don't have to say too much about it, uh, of course, in this context. I'll just say that, uh, that we have democracy domestically, but uh, in most countries, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even uh, exclude the U.S. What we do in the election when we, <laughs> when we vote um, in the domestic elections, uh, we this 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 activity has less and uh, less and lesser importance over time because. The, the parliament itself is increasingly uh, a constraint. Uh, lastly, the, the, the third um, imperative of inclusion is, uh, is equitable allocation of resources. And I would even use the term uh, global justice. I mean, we know the, the discourse about global justice uh, is uh, is about uh, is about kind of a moral dis discussion about what we owe to the rest, what we owe to the poor, and um, there is a very strong um, uh, trend that calls for um, providing for the for the poor. 
So Thomas Puget, for example, uh, ideas of global uh, resource dividend. So the idea that we are rich, we can give to the poor. Which raises question about how much and to whom, and uh, whether we also need to uh, impose our standards and our way of life, etc. Um, but I would suggest that uh, this type of approach of global justice is like providing fish uh, to uh, the hungry, but uh, it's the, the better way and the more dignified way is to provide uh, hooks, to provide participation. So the idea here is that inclusion also, because inclusion uh, uh, promotes the voice of the disregarded, um, voice is um, both necessary and sufficient for ensuring uh, more equitable um, outcomes. Um, so let me again give you one, uh, one example uh, to demonstrate the point. Um, and I'm not talking about you know, grand uh, changes in the way the Security Council decides. I'm talking about daily decisions. For example, the decisions of the EU Food Safety uh, Commission. There is such a commission. Um, I've been reading, uh, for example, Morten Broberg, uh, recent uh, writing on the food safety regime. And it turns out that the, this, uh, this uh, committee decides on standards for products that are being uh, imported to the EU. And they can decide one day that they don't want the, the farmers in Vietnam or other places in the world to use certain pesticides. So they, they just say, well, we're not allowing this pesticide any longer. But they don't ask the, the, the farmers. They don't tell them even, right, that, that they've changed the, the policies. Now, um, and they shift, and they might shift all the burden, all the, all the risks, for example, the use of uh, pesticide that uh, increase the, the, the uh, risk of cancer to, to the farmers rather than to the consumers. Um, um, or what are the consequences of using certain pesticides in different climates? They might, even not, they might not even know about those consequences because they don't discuss this with the farmers. So what about opening up the decision-making process to the stakeholders, those disregarded farmers? This, are, this is the level of the, um, um, of the involvement that, uh, that can be, um, can be uh, 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 required or expected from those uh, institutions. And, and maybe we can even say that under, under trade law, under WTO law, under GATT law, this obligation exists, but we need the, uh, we need the, the parties or we need the, the, the uh, appellate body to make this argument to, 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 or to, to impose that, that demand. But, and arguably, more inclusive institutions um, could be a goal for uh, the law, for domestic constitutional law, for domestic administrative law, but also for international law to, um, uh, to promote. Um, so, so how do we um, um, implement 
that idea, how do we um, translate it to actual, uh, actual rules? First of all, I think there is a, there is a, a huge uh, challenge on a normative level, which is to decide, to provide uh, uh, criteria of actually who are those disregarded? Who are, are those whose voice should be included? Uh, who, what, are the farmers from Morocco, Nigeria, um, uh, Vietnam, are they entitled in a sense, do they have a right under UK law, EU law, international trade law, do they have a right to participate? Um, what what could be the what could be the approach to uh, to determine to answer this question? Some suggestions have been made, like uh, Robert Goodin's idea of all affected, or Nancy Fraser's all su all subjected, all those who are subjected to a, a policy, a institution, all those affected, but. The chain could be too long. Chain, the chain of causation could be too short. Where do we, where do we uh, uh, put the, um, the the boundary? Maybe the test should be dependency. If, if farmers are dependent on a certain policy, they should be included. Maybe this is too vague. I don't know. Uh, this is something that uh, I'm actually struggling with, and I appreciate you comments. Um, once we know who are the disregarded that are entitled to standing, entitled to participate, etc., um, there are questions about, um, about um, what are the rules, how to structure the decision-making rules within a global governance body. And here um, I refer to the um, literature, growing literature on the so-called global administrative law that in some places uh, is um, ridiculed or criticized, and I'm very much in favor of it. I see it myself as part of it. Um, it is criticized because it's not law. It's, it's something that is uh, partly international, partly domestic law, partly private law, partly something uh, amorphous, and people don't like it. Some people don't like it. Some people don't regard it as law at all, right? Um, but there is, we see that, we see this practice. Also, we see an expectation, a growing expectation that global governance bodies, even if they are, part, if they, even if they are private, they would um, provide hearing for those affected, uh, would provide reasons for the decisions, um, try to... Um, um, give account of the process of decision-making. Um, and we also see, we also, uh, we also see emerging an anticipation of expectations that there will be some sort of review, some sort of review uh, mechanism over decisions of global uh, institutions. Um, so, but here, so there is a lot of promise, and this is the promise that actually motivates uh, what we know from domestic administrative law. Right? There is a lot of promise here, but there's also there are also limits. The limits are also well known to everybody who's done 
who studied administrative law, who practiced in administrative law, the practice, and the, 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 the limit is that those who are regulated are very uh, savvy uh, to know how to manipulate the rules, right? So we know that everybody's giving reasons, etc. but we know that the, the real reasons are not the ones that are not mentioned in the decision, right? Um, so there are limits to, uh, to um, the, uh, the law that demands accountability. And moreover, we also notice that uh, the, uh, the same powerful uh, um, interest groups are, are also um, able to benefit from those rules and sometimes use the rules against uh, the, um, the intention of the, um, the drafters. So, for example, we, there's a recent uh, article by Tanya Voon and Andrew Mitchell about the tobacco industry that, um, that took uh, advantage of the demand for transparency and demanded more and more information from the, regulated, from the regulator in order to burden the regulator and to, uh, in, uh, to, to block uh, the regulation. So we see the, the, the downside of, 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 of global um, administrative law. Um, two um, other sources potential sources for remedying the problem of the disregard. Um, one is very speculative, the other one is, uh, I think, well established. I'll begin with a more established uh, uh, response, which is the response from the domestic. So once we, the, once uh, decision makers uh, moved from the local to the, to the global, there were some decision makers at the local level that um, found it necessary and uh, possible to still um, hold to power, to still have their say. And I think that for me, the most important, uh, more, most interesting uh, development was the involvement of national courts, domestic courts, involvement in global governance. Let me give you an example just from this morning. Uh, the German Constitutional Court um, reviewed the, um, uh, the legality of Germany's voting for the trade agreement with, uh, with Canada, the, the CETA, whether the vote would be compatible with the government's obligations under German constitutional law, under the German basic law. And the court imposed limits, limitations on the, the discretion of the German negotiators when they negotiate an international treaty. This is something that was unheard of 25 years ago, 20 years ago. Courts used to be very shy, very uh, silent, um, saying that the state has to speak in one voice, and the voice is the voice of the government. Um, not only the, Germ the German court is, you know, if Germany is uh, 
uh, is against a certain uh, agreement, obviously the EU will be against it, right? So the German court doesn't have to worry too much. But even uh, even courts of, of uh, less powerful states, we see them um, resisting the growing authority of international organizations by, for example, acting collectively. So we see a lot of, inter uh, a lot of interaction among courts, among national courts, um, expecting each other to share the, the, the risk of challenging the international, uh, international uh, institution. So I used to think that uh, uh, until a couple of weeks ago, I used to think that this might be the only, the only way out. So the only response to global uh, the domination of global institutions is, um, is increased uh, um, ten, uh, um, contestation from, uh, from uh, national, national courts. The limit, of course, here is that this works, it might work well for uh, Belgium or for, for uh, Germany or the UK. It wouldn't work as great for uh, countries like Sri Lanka and, uh, uh, and um, South Africa even, and even uh, uh, smaller uh, economies. And so that the north-south uh, difficulty will not be resolved in a, in a similar uh, way, an effective way. Um, so here comes the third, uh, the third um, response that I think is, is very speculative, but uh, I would like to um, present it. It's something that I've been uh, thinking about very, very recently also with some with my colleagues at uh, in Cambridge, uh, and this is about using the. Now, don't think that I'm naive, okay? Because uh, because wait for the to the end, please. So the idea is using the the information revolution, the the, the new uh, social networks, um, the to to reach uh, constituencies in in developing countries. Think about the farmer in Vietnam or in, in Nigeria. Uh, if once they know about the decision being taken at the, or expected to be taken in, in Brussels about food safety, and they can weigh in through, uh, through uh, the smartphones and Skype or whatever. Imagine, right? Um, and and also, and why? How come they would know about about the about the decision that is pending? Everything is online. You know, you can know everything is. We have this. Uh, we have this uh, sense. That all the information is uh, is uh, in our fingertips. We can access it uh, easily. This was a, this was the, the the idea, the lure of, of e-governance in the beginning, late nineties, the beginning of two thousands, and and um, the EU, for example, uh, uses it uh, since two thousand fourteen. I think there is the uh, you can Google uh, your voice in Europe your voice in Europe, and you get to a, a website where the EU presents its uh, uh, um, plans, and you get to, uh, to weigh in on, on that. And the EU sometimes um, uh, reacts and responds. And for example, the position of the, EU, of the EU concerning the, the investment uh, uh, state dispute settlement under the new mega regional uh, agreement was influenced by um, uh, public um, uh, by, by people's uh, um, 
a reaction. So there is the sense of, of the, the, the kind of promise of, um, of non-legal informal information exchange uh, that could, might reduce the information asymmetries. Well, right, we know that it doesn't work. It doesn't work in many cases because uh, we think that we have all the information in our we have all the information in our fingertips, but we don't know how to process it. And there are many difficulties uh, for us in, in, um, in um, processing the information, assessing what is right, what is wrong. There's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of de deliberate misinformation. Uh, and there are lots of rumors that are sp spread online. Um, and they are effective. For example, uh, the, uh, when, when Japan wanted uh, governments to, uh, uh, to allow to, to, to the, the killing of whales, um, it spread the, uh, the, the idea that among, among uh, countries that have uh, strong uh, uh, fishing uh, uh, industries, that whales kill fish. And therefore, uh, the wh whales uh, are, are the, uh, you know, uh, should, be, uh, should be reduced. Uh, how can individuals assess this information? Extremely uh, difficult. And what we see here is the rise of information uh, agents or, or monitors uh, that see the difficulties, the use of asymmetric information, uh, uh, the, the, the persistence of asymmetric information in the, even in, in social uh, media and trying to, trying to um, remedy uh, this problem. Which leads me to, 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 to answer the question, which is, uh, um, can we regard uh, information that is available online as a uh, global resource that need to be, needs to be managed in some way? So the, market, the global marketplace of ideas, should it have some kind of a regulation, regulator we have? We see the evolution of private regulators. We see the evolution of national regulators that seek to influence the, the media. It's very, of course, very dangerous. But should there be some effort, global effort, to, um, to ensure that there's enough information and that information is reliable? And, it, um, and that information, could it then be used by those disregarded to uh, um, enhance their voice. So this is where I, um, th this is the, my, my very recent uh, thoughts on, on this topic. But this way or the other, um, I think that uh, inclusion is, is the, should be the focus of, uh, of lawyers, obviously international lawyers, but I think also administrative lawyers and, and constitutional lawyers should see the outside as a relevant sphere for their attention. And domestic administrative law and domestic international, uh, domestic constitutional law um, uh, should include the global as part of its um, 
focus. Thank you.